before we enter into worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again for the privilege together, um, how merciful you are to us, and that you have worn out your sovereign grace on the likes of us and your lovely son, Christ. You teach us that it is good for us to confess before you, to confess to one another, knowing that um, our sin debt is paid in full in Christ, yet as we trod this fallen world, as we struggle with sin, as our uh, sin remains, there's an offense to you. The offense remains. It is a stench uh, before your nostrils. And um, it breaks that intimate fellowship that we so cherish uh, with you and with one another. Although our salvation is sealed in Christ, still as we struggle with sin inside of glory, um, we long for you to hear our hearts, to, to um, hear our anguish as we uh, hate our sin and long to fight in your power, to fight together uh, against it, to walk in righteousness and by your power, by the power of the indwelling spirit. So we come and we confess. Uh, we long to have that intimate restored that is uh, stained in, uh, and um, a rub in our relationship and our intimacy with you. We ask that you would strengthen us, that you would give us a steely resolve, an ever-increasing steely resolve to walk in righteousness, to hate our sin personally and corporately, and to live as light for your glory in this world. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we'll return to the book of Ephesians, and we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And the title of this morning's message is The Riches of Redemption. So if you'll look with it, let's, let's begin back in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 7 again. Remember, just uh, all, the, all the way down to verse 14, that's one big driving sentence in the Greek. So um, that's really a picture here when we get this first, the first 13, 14 verses here of chapter 1 is really this snapshot of the wealth, the riches of who we are in Christ, the identity we have as those purchased out by Christ, those belonging to God in Christ. And um, what belongs to us, the spiritual riches that belong to us in our identity as believers, hidden and secured in Christ. So let's just fill ourselves up with that, that beautiful language again. I'll read down to verse 7, and then we'll concentrate this morning on portions of verses 6 and 7. We'll not even get really through uh, all of verse 7. But look me there, beginning in verse 1. There Paul gives his introduction. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. Best, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We'll hold right there. Wow. I know every time we come here and every time we start to work into verse one and we run into this, glorious language. What do we do with such language? What do we do with such a sovereign God? What do we do with such a glorious Savior? Remember, uh, verses 1 through 14, that's really, it's just a driving song of the miracle of salvation that belongs to us in Christ. Now, 
when we think about this, this is the essence right here. These first 14 verses that we're plodding through, that we're, we're coming together and we're just marveling at them together as we worship these past few Lord's days, Lord days. Uh, um, it's the essence of the Christian faith. Right here, we have a condensed snapshot of everything that's compiled within the Christian faith. This is the essence of who we are in Christ. So remember, uh, for starters here, just kind of to build us a foundation, the book of, uh, of Ephesians really divides nicely into two parts. So chapters one through three speaks of who we are in Christ, our spiritual riches that belong to us in Christ, our wealth in Christ. And then chapters four through six speaks of our walk or our calling, our work, our obedience to Christ, our relationship with Christ. So our wealth in Christ and our walk in Christ. And so it divides nice in that way. But notice how the book is laid out. And this is essential for us understanding who we are as we strive to obey our Lord and walk in righteousness. The indicative who we are in Christ comes first. It's the indicative that proceeds and procures the imperative. So the indicative, who we are, the riches that belong to us in Christ, there secures for us the reality of our walk and our obedience and our calling. God's command on us uh, for our lives hidden in Christ as his obedient followers. So what we are called to do as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is completely dependent upon what God has already done in us, in Christ. So God calls us to reflect the glory of Christ into the world. And us doing that, the reality of that, is based fully upon what God has already done through us in Christ. God's call upon us is based upon the strength of what he has already done in our behalf in Christ. So the old adage goes, really, uh, and rightly so, really, really we will be uh, uh, to, to become who we are. As we're thinking about our walk in Christ, it's always this walk of becoming who we really are, living out who we already are in Christ. And that is a great foundation for how we think about praying for ourselves and one another. We are to be praying as a, a daily kind of, a settled reality of how we need to approach prayer. That in our God's calling on our life and all the, the uh, branches that spread out and how he uses us and what the dynamic, dynamic he's placed us in and, and who we interact with in the world really is this prayer of God, give me greater capacity today to be who I am in Christ. For your glory, for my good, and for the, the, the proclamation of the gospel and the living out of your grace lavished upon your people. So there's a foundation of a healthy prayer there. Now, thus far in this chapter, we've seen that God has lavished his grace upon us. When? Before creation, right? Before the creation of matter, space, and time. God had set his adopting love on us. Before creation, we were caught up in God's electing love. So that tells us this, this driving reality for how we're continuing to look at Ephesians here. All that God gives us in this, this electing love that he, has, that he has lavished upon us in his space and time, that he creates, all of it will be consummated in Christ. All that he gives to us and his electing love is consummated in Christ. All he does for us is consummated in Christ. God is the initiator of our salvation and his electing love. 
that he set upon us before the foundation of the world. And he is the sustainer of our salvation in the intoning work of Christ the Son. He is the initiator and he is the sustainer. Our salvation is in the power of God, period. Listen to the language of 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there, uh, Paul's referring to that, that, that part of our salvation of being saved. And that's always that's an ongoing reality, isn't it? We are saved. We are being saved. And ultimately, we will be saved in final glory. So we're saved from the, the, from the penalty of sin, right? That's settled. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's our walk. As the Holy Spirit gives us strength to walk in righteousness moment by moment, breath by breath, day after day, for God calls us home to his glory. We are being freed from the power of sin that still resides here in this fallen world. And we still wrestle with that reality, but we're being freed from it. We are no longer walking in sinfulness. We are walking in righteousness with a battle against the reality of sin. We're being being set free, and we one day will be fully free from the presence of sin. No more to deal with even the presence of sin in eternal glory. We'll be freed from the very presence. So we are saved, we are being saved, and we'll ultimately be uh, consumed in glory. Saved from the penalty being saved from the power of sin and ultimately saved from the presence of sin. So here, Paul gives that beautiful language there in 1 Corinthians about that being that walk for those who are outside the faith. It's foolishness. They're perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our salvation is initiated and sustained by God. Now, it's revealed from God. Also know that this comes from God. This is a revealed reality. To the lost world, it's foolishness. It's not a mathematical uh, calculation. It's not a a political uh, science um, uh, assumption. It is a revelation from God. God has lavished upon us his electing grace according to his sovereign goodwill. And he has secured for us his, our salvation in the redemptive work of Christ. And that is a revelatory message to us from God. So with that in mind, I want to point you to the Redeemer. I want you to notice the Redeemer here in verse 6. So we've looked at this reality that the praise, uh, uh, it being to the praise of the glory of his grace, that being Uh, our salvation that is initiated by God and sealed in Christ. That is to the praise of the glory of his grace. And now we're going to look at the the last uh, little phrase there in verse six, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And the beloved there speaks of Christ and Christ is the redeemer. We're going to look at the redeemer and then we're going to look at the redeemed this morning. First, I want you to see the Redeemer. This salvation has been freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So let me say this up front. There is no knowledge of salvation apart from the beloved. None. There is no knowledge of genuine salvation from God apart from Christ. None at all. The beloved is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are a new creation. In the beloved, the miracle of salvation is made known to us. Outside of Christ, there is no known salvation. The beloved is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who bore our sin debt. So that's central to who we understand here as the Redeemer. He is the one who bore our sin debt. In him, we are made sons and daughters of God. The beloved is the Redeemer. 
Now, Christ's electing grace is the forerunner here. So Christ is, uh, excuse me, God's electing grace is the forerunner here. So before the foundation of the world, God had elected his people. So that precedes the reality of the Redeemer. Now in space and time, the beloved, the Redeemer, now procures that salvation. That electing love is now sealed in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And there, Christ has, has two things have taken place. There is a debt that Christ has paid at the cross, our sin debt, his righteousness has then been imputed into our account and our sin debt has been laid upon him. So two things have transpired here. Sin carries the weight of death. Sin carries a debt that must be paid and Christ has paid that debt and that he bore our sin debt in his body. He bore the righteous wrath of God the Father that belonged to sinners. He bore that righteous wrath on the cross and he imputed his perfect righteous life lived under the law of God into our account. So there he paid our sin debt and that he bore it in his body. God the Father poured out his righteous wrath on Christ in our behalf where we deserve the wrath of God. He bore it in our place. All those who repent and believe on him and he didn't just leave us hanging there. Then he imputes his righteousness into our account. Thus, we're not just left halfway hanging before a holy God. Our sin debt paid, but no righteousness. He imputes his righteousness. And there is the full reality of the beloved, bearing out our sin debt and imputing his righteousness. And there we are made sons and daughters of God. So we've been redeemed in Christ. You see that there? It says in Christ. We have been redeemed in the beloved. By faith, we are accepted in Christ. Now, in there, um, we, we think that, that it's, it's just speaking of, of in his, his work or, or in him. We're, we're secured in him. That's true. But here is it, the, it's really pointing to something a little more, uh, a little more big picture here. So it's in him, in his work. But remember when, it, when we uh, heard that language of in the heavenly places there in verse three, where we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that spiritual realm. So that's what it's really talking about here when we say in him, in him in the sense of location. So it's in him based in his work, the spiritual work that he has done, that transpired, that he's done on on our behalf, that transpired at the cross in real space and time. There was this realm of spiritual reality where this transaction took place. And so that spiritual work that Christ performed on our behalf on the cross in space and time is what's being spoken of here. So we're in him in that spiritual realm where he has secured our salvation by paying our sin debt before a holy father and imputing, spiritually speaking, his righteousness lived out before the law. So that's how this language is is laid out for us in Ephesians here. That's what it means for us to be in the beloved. In the reality of that spiritual work that he has done on our behalf. So that being true, we are now by faith, we are accepted by God, the father in Christ. By faith, we are made one with Christ. We are the body of Christ, are we not? And as the body of Christ, we are acceptable to God, we are acceptable to God in Christ. Thus, We are a reflection of Christ into the world. Isn't that our calling? And all of our calling is predicated upon the reality of who we are, the riches of who we are in Christ. So beloved there, that's an interesting name, isn't it? The beloved. He is our redeemer. 
Now, the beloved is that name, that intimate name, that, that name of intimate affection that God the Father has set aside for Christ the Son and for Christ the Son alone. Do you remember um, there at his baptism when Christ, when Christ is going to be baptized? Do you remember what the Father, when the Father spoke, thundered down from heaven? What did the Father say? This is my beloved Son. My beloved. And I'm well pleased. Yes, this is my beloved Son. And I am well pleased. Colossians 1.13 says this, For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the dominion of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So Christ is the beloved, and he's the beloved one. For does it have anything to do with anything or anybody other than Christ alone? So this is this is the father's special name of intimate love for his son. And that name has been given to the son just because of the son, period. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ. He's the beloved for his own sake. Now, God, the father made the covenant of grace with who? With Christ, his eternal son. God the Father made the covenant of works with man, man with Adam. How'd that go? Not so well. The covenant of grace that God the Father made with his beloved, really before the foundation of the world, is kept and secured and procured in space and time by the beloved. It's for his sake and his sake alone. He has made the covenant and he has kept the covenant for his name's sake. What was the covenant? Before the foundation of the world, the triune God, according to his own good pleasure to glorify himself, Determined that he would set aside a people for himself among sinners in a fallen world that he would redeem out by the atoning blood of his son, the unique God man, Jesus Christ, the son of God who would take on flesh. How could the son of God suffer? The son of God became man that he might obey and suffer in our nature. The Son, in the covenant of grace with the Father, took on flesh that he might identify with us, that in space and time, he might go to the cross, identifying with lost sinners, all who repent and believe on him, and there secure the guarantee of our election. It's for Christ's sake. In Christ's sake alone. So because of Christ, all of God's grace that has been extended to us is extended to us. It's because of Christ alone. It's for his sake. It's for his glory. And we are caught up in that glory. We are caught up in this beautiful uh, covenant of grace made by Father and Son, the Father of the Triune God, the Son of the Triune God, empowered by the, by the Spirit of the Triune God within us, the recipients. Know this, we are caught up in this glorious covenant, but it is for Christ's sake. And we relish in that. That is where we learn to worship. That is where we learn to exalt our Savior. That is where we learn to treasure our salvation. That is where we learn to just, when we can't, uh, when we when we don't know what to do with ourselves, we're about to burst at the scene. That's where we lay all of it down in praise and thanksgiving. All the grace extended to us is being extended to us in Christ according to his atoning work on our behalf. All of it. So the beloved of God receives the fullness of God's love, does he not? This is what we have to settle in and hold on to this, theologically speaking. All of God's love is lavished upon the Son. Christ receives all the goodness of God's love, all of it. 
the eternal, unfathomable goodness of God's love belongs to the Son. And we are in him according to his atoning work, that spiritual reality of his atoning work on behalf of sinners, that work that was played out in space and time on the cross, this sacrificial atoning work that appeased the wrath of God and bore out the righteous wrath of God, where God is now just that he does not overlook sin and a justifier of all those who are in Christ. That reality, we there are in Christ, and there in Christ we are one with Christ. Hear me, one with Christ. And Christ is one with the Father. I, I, I don't even know if you're tracking with me. I don't know if I, I'm tracking with myself. What do we do with that? Christ is one with the Father. And all the eternal goodness of the Father belongs to Christ fully for Christ's sake. And we've been caught up in that covenant. And you say, well, wait a minute. You're not really going to track this all the way out, are you, brother? Wait a minute. That can't, you're not going to draw that conclusion, are you? Well, that would be foolish of me to draw that conclusion on my own. The Father loves the Son, and the Son is pleased to secure for us every spiritual blessing of salvation. Through his atoning work on our behalf. God blesses us for the Son's sake. Now, Christ in his earthly ministry as it's coming to a close. There in John 17, he prays to the Father. We see that beautiful language of the high priestly prayer of Christ. Are you with me there? Can you go there in your minds? I won't turn there. You know where I'm at? So that high priestly prayer that Christ, before he's going to go, return to the Father. All his work is finished on this earth. It is paid for. And there he, he has this intimate language, this sweet language of the beloved to the Father. And listen to what he says there midway through. I'll just pick it up. The glory which you have given me, this is the Son to the Father in prayer. The unique God-man speaking to his Father, his eternal Father. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Who's the them? That's everyone throughout every generation has been elected by God for salvation before time, space, and matter began. Them. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Here's the application. The love of God for believers is the same as the love of God for his son. That's what the words of Christ give to us in Scripture. If you are sitting here in Christ, the love that your creator who elected you before the foundation of the world is the same exact love and all its profoundness and all its unlimitedness as his love for the son. You are in Christ. It's the same love. The vastness is really beyond comprehension. But it is no less true. So here's the application. Saturate yourself in God's eternal love for you in Christ. Ponder. Meditate on it. Marinate yourself in it. Saturate yourself in it. Chew the cud on that one. 
That's your spiritual reality. You are loved by the Father in the same manner that Christ is loved by the Father. That is the will of Christ for you, for whom he has died, that you might be reconciled to God. Now let's think about redeemed a little bit. That's us. Notice there in verse 7. So this, this grace, this saving grace, has been freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. And we'll stop right there. In him we have redemption. So what does that mean? In him we have redemption. So again, remember, in him is in that sphere of his work of redemption that then has been lavished upon us, that supernatural reality of what Christ has done at the cross, what he's accomplished at the cross. So this supernatural, if you will, great exchange, our sinfulness for his righteousness, his righteousness imputed to us, our sin debt assuaged by his perfect sacrifice. That was for you, Lane. <laughs> that was great this morning. Thank you, brother. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Listen to language here. It's a picture. We're looking back at the Old Testament. We're looking back at a monumental reality uh, of Old Testament Israel. And as we're catching up in our morning Bible study, we're, we're close to, 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 to closing in on, on these realities. I mean, we're finding Old Testament Israel in, in tumultual uh, waters right now, you know, as they're there. Uh, they're in the promised land and, and all these battles and everything's going on. But here's the foundation. And it's a picture. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem. There's a the language. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great judgment. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the bondage, or the, excuse me, of the burdens of the Egyptians. Now that language right there, that's, that's a reality that happened in space and time for uh, uh, national Old Testament, national Israel. They're becoming a nation. God's bringing them out. But what's being pictured there? A typology of the, of the Old Testament is a picture of Christ. Christ, who will there bring us out from under our burden of sin, our sin debt that belongs to us, that we cannot free ourselves from asunder. Christ will free us from that. That's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of Christ who delivers his people from the bondage of sin. I'm going to give you a definition of redemption from John MacArthur. Redemption is the act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price of sin, which has outraged his holiness. It's a pretty good definition. So this term redemption speaks of deliverance by payment of a price. So it's uh, uh, often used in the ancient world. It was used uh, for a slave who was, who was purchased or bought out of the slave market. Or a slave who was purchased to be set free. If someone wanted to have uh, this, uh, a slave set free, they would have to buy this slave out of the slave market and then set him free. And that, that term that was used for that exchange, a paying of a price, to relieve a debt, the debt of slavery, in this case, is most poignantly used. And again, uh, that's such a, a, a flashpoint term in our culture that uh, we're scared to talk about it or use the language. But it was common in the first century. Slavery was a common reality. And it's a very poignant scriptural picture. And we can't lose sight of it for cultural nuances. That's foolishness on our part. 
It's a reality. It's a reality of a fallen world, but it is a poignant illustration in Scripture. And this term, redemption, is brought out of that context, particularly of slavery, where a slave is purchased and a debt is paid for that slave. A payment is made for the slave to be then set free. That's a picture of redemption. That's what that word speaks to. So it's a deliverance, a payment of a price. It's a delivering a slave from slavery to freedom. Paying a price to free someone from bondage. To buy a slave for the purpose of setting him free. Now, as that translates to the spiritual reality of the world, this is what it looks like. The world is captive to sin. It is a fallen world. We are sons and daughters of Adam. We are born in sin and we are shaped in iniquity. And we come into this earth in debt to the holiness of God. We are sinful and we cannot do a thing about it in and of our own strength. We're sinners. Why is the world so messed up, brother? Why is there so much political strife? We're sinners. Why, why can't we just all get along? Why is Russia unleashing military arsenals on civilians? We're sinners. It's a fallen world. We're captive to sin. John 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We are sinners. We are slaves to sin, but Christ intercedes for sinners, for he is the unique God-man who has trod this earth in perfect obedience to the law of God. The sinless Savior who has identified himself with sinners. And though we are captive to sin, he is free from sin. We are slave to sin, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that, through, uh, that, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that, uh, excuse me, uh, from the heart to that form of teaching which you were, to which you were committed. You were, you see that? You were slaves to sin. There's the language. But now in Christ, you've been conformed to the teaching to which you were committed. Sin holds a bondage on mankind. Sin holds a bondage on the the, the fallen world. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Sin has a hold on mankind. Sin has a hold on us. We are born sinners and we live that out. And we cannot change. Anything else is just window dressing. We come into this world sinners and we'll go out sinners under the righteous judgment of God. Least the atoning blood of Christ is applied to our lives. Least we repent and believe on Christ. That is it. There is no other hope of salvation. It is through Christ alone. Now, to purchase sinners from the penalty of death, a price must be paid. That's the language of redemption. In the beloved, we have redemption. He has paid a price that must be paid. There must be a death to purchase sinners from the grip of sin. Jesus paid that sin debt for his people. Hebrews 9, 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus has accomplished our redemption from the penalty of sin. Galatians 1, 3 through 4. It is in Christ. Christ has paid that sin debt. Christ has has, uh, paid the debt that must be paid. Death must transpire. A penalty, uh, it, it must be paid. 
Galatians 1, 3 through 4, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of, of our God and Father. There's the language. He gave himself. He gave his life's blood that he might atone for our sin debt. God chose to redeem sinners. This is an act of God. There's nothing that we had to do with this. There's nothing that we could do in and of, in our, of ourselves. God must do this. This is God's choice. This is an act of a sovereign God. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God must do this, and he did it for his own glory. And we're caught up in that reality. So in redemption, in this paying of a slice, uh, uh, paying of a price, in this buying back of a slave, buying us out of our sin debt, buying us out of our slavery to sin, and this act of redemption, Christ bore the white-hot righteous wrath of God the Father on our behalf. There's the death. There's the payment. It's spiritual in nature. But it's a transaction that happens in space and time for us in our reality of who we are as sinners. Now quickened from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. Jesus is that great Passover lamb. Remember the Old Testament? Remember the coming out? That beautiful picture coming out of Egypt, coming out from under the yoke of Pharaoh. It's a picture of Christ. Jesus is that great Passover lamb. Christ acts on our behalf, and there at the cross, he absorbed the righteous judgment of God on our behalf, that there he would purchase us. He would make that payment. That's the redemption. He would make a payment to the holiness of God to buy us out of our slavery to sin that we cannot buy for our, buy ourselves out of in of our own strength. That he would there purchase us out of our slavery to sin under the righteous wrath of God and bear that wrath in himself to set us free, to pay that debt, to free us from our slavery to sin. There's the ultimate reality of the picture of slavery in scripture. Do not let a culture take it from you. Hold it, know it, understand it. Outside of Christ, you were slaves to sin and you could not do anything about it other than pay your debt to a righteous God, which is his eternal wrath. But Christ bore you out according to his own good pleasure. He acted on our behalf for his own good pleasure. It's the character of God that demands that sin must be judged. Do you see that? It's according to God's character. It's according to his holiness. You were enslaved to sin and he must judge you. He must. This is the message of scripture. This is not politically correct. This is not acceptable in our current in our current social climate. This is not okay. But we cannot budge here. This is the message of Scripture. This is the message of the gospel. And we're bound to carry this message to whatever context God has placed us. We're bound to the writers of this text who have been inspired by the Spirit of God. That's where we must stand. This is the reality of the gospel. This is the meaning of redemption. This is what is spiritually true of you if you are here in Christ. It has everything to do with the character of God. The character of God demands that sin must be judged. And there's the starting point. Christ bears out the wrath that we deserve. What grace? How are you going to understand grace if you don't understand that you're a slave to sin? How are you going to understand grace? How are you going to understand the marvelous work of God that he bore out the righteous wrath of the Father on your behalf that you deserved? How are you going to understand redemption? How are you going to know what it means to praise your Savior for your salvation? 
you don't understand that he is the beloved in the Father for his own sake. And for his glory, he has wrapped himself in flesh. He has condescended this world. He has lived a perfect life and he has gone to the cross to bear out your sin debt that you might know him and worship him. So Christ bears the penalty for our sins. We've been saved from sin's penalty and we are being saved from sin's power. Hold this big picture. Let's, 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 let's work this again. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are currently as followers of Christ in this fallen world, as we walk through this fallen world, uh, world as believers, as followers of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live righteously, to carry this gospel with power. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved in the presence of sin. Amen? That's our hope. We will be. All paid by the redemptive death of Christ on the cross. The cross of Christ deals with the problem of sin. Now, the problem of sin is going to be uh, uh, defined in all kinds of ways in this current cultural climate. And it's going to be tap danced around and it's going to be given all kinds uh, of flowery language. And, and, it's just, and it's going to be given all kinds of therapeutics are going to be thrown at it. But here's the reality of Scripture. Sin is an offense to a holy God. His law is the standard. There is no other standard. It's the law of God is our standard, period. It's a standard for all mankind everywhere in every generation of Christ returns, period. And we have broken it in Adam. You came into this world. God brought you into this world through your mother's womb in Adam, dead in your trespasses sin. And you live that reality out every day of your life. And you'll be judged for it. You'll meet your maker one day and you'll be judged for it. Least you repent and believe on Christ, who there has paid your redemption in his atoning blood. That's the reality of every generation on this terrestrial ball till Christ returns. There is no other concept of sin. Christ has borne our sin so that we would be delivered from the righteous judgment of God. His grace has been lavished upon us. We've been loved from eternity. Now, what do we bring to this equation? What we, that's just it's too good to be true. What do I have to do? What do I have to bring? I was listening to, when I listened to you, I was looking at the, at the thread of the group thread, and I was kind of thinking to myself, why am I in a group thread? What happened to my life? But that's no, just me. So, uh, so I'm in this text, you know, I'm looking at the guys, and, and they're all gonna they're all gonna meet Friday night, so I can't come. So I had prior commitments, but we're going to, we're going to Chris and Kendall's house, and you know, they're always gonna feed us well. And, and brother Chris a little banged up, and he's like, Man, I wish I could be there, you know. And so I'm just looking at the guys are commenting and everything, and, and of course then I see what brother Mark writes in there. And uh, our types in there. How does it go? Types in there. <laughs> and of course, Mark, being the gracious brother that he is, you know, he said, well, "What can we bring? You know, what, what, what do you need? What can we bring?" Chris te- te- types back, texts back. Uh, don't bring anything. Don't you bring anything? And that's the reality of redemption. We don't bring anything to the redemptive work of Christ. All we can contribute is our sin. There's nothing that we can do. And Christ says to us, don't bring anything. I alone will pay your sin debt in full. Don't bring anything. You brought enough. A life full of sin. I'll do the work of redemption. It belongs to me alone. That's my work. And by my grace, I'll catch you up in it for my glory and for your good. So Brother Chris said, y'all don't need to bring anything. That's exactly what Christ says about redemption. You don't need to bring anything. In redemption, Christ has paid our sin debt in full according to his riches, his eternal riches of his character. Charles Haddon Spurgeon 
speaks to it this way, thinking about redemption and the riches of Christ. And he just throws out some language that, you know, makes you ponder. I don't even know how to exactly think about it or articulate it. But let me just read it to you. Talking about the riches of Christ's redemption lavished upon us. He says of that reality that the redemption of Christ is beyond calculation. That's fun to think about, isn't it? It's beyond calculation. It's above all limits. It's above all observations. And we're going to have baptism soon. And what a glorious time that is for the church, right? And we'll go out to the lake. And we'll probably do it before it gets real warm, so Brother Danny's going to do it. And, you know, I'm going to watch. And I'm going to see these two brothers go into the water. And I'm going to observe that. But I'm just, I'm just getting a glimpse, man. Underneath there, there's fish and rocks and snakes and currents <laughs> and sand and mud and temperature that I can't even, I can't even begin to glimpse. It's there. Redemption is beyond all observation. All observation. It's beyond all ways of action. It's beyond all understanding. God can forgive and forget. That, dri- that just, just, just drives at me all the time. I think of that often. And I just, I just, I can't, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that. What do we do with that? What do we do with that kind of understanding? Because we can forgive, right? Praise God that God has done this redemptive work in us. And we're here as believers. Uh, We're here and we can forgive by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We can forgive. But I I still remember it. Right? And not even in holding grudges. It's not that. I remember my own sin. Doesn't that drive you crazy? I wonder about that because it just pops up in my mind. Years later, as a Christian, those things are flashing through your head, about the filth of my life. And I still have memories. And they, they don't go away. You know, it just hit me as I was looking through this this morning. And, and I don't know that it fully equates. Uh, I'm just sharing with you out of my heart now. But that, that, always just, that always just kills me in my Christian life. I was like, why, God, why can't I just, how, how do those things just flash back in there? How I used to live. So what, what good is that? You know, I mean, I don't even ponder on them, but that's just, it, it, I just feel filthy that they come, they, they just cross through them. Good is that, God? Why, why can't they go away? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But then I thought today, one thing I can know from that that really just thrills my heart is that God can forgive and he's, uh, uh, he's all knowing is that there's just a place that God and his glorious marvelous splendor can literally really put all that away in a real reality of forgiveness. He forgives and really forgets. And that I can know that God forgives and really forgets really makes me happy. And if there's one reason that I can hold to, why in the world can I still remember my sin? It's to know that I still can and I still remember it and God does it. He can do that and I can't because he's glorious. He is glorious. God can forgive and forget. What a glorious God. The riches of God's forgiveness is without limitation. That's just the long and short of it. We can't exhaust them. You cannot exhaust the riches of God's grace that's extended to us in Christ. You can't. You may feel like you can uh, at certain moments in life, but um, hear me, you can't. You can't exhaust them. So what do we do with it? Well, here's the applications we close this morning. The riches of God's grace and forgiveness are without limitation. You have to know that. So what do we do? We feast on the thought of God's eternal love. For us, you feast on the thought of God's eternal love for you. Know that he who began a good work in you will see you through to the end. He'll see you through every trial of this life. He'll see you through everyone. And we're thinking, I mean, look at look at the, uh, you know, we're, we're on the third term of the most 
radical pro-abortion administration we've ever had in this country. There's turmoil all over the world. There's heinous war in Europe for the first uh, to this to this degree for the first time in a long time. There's economic woes in our current climate. I mean, there's there's difficult seasons of life. We have brothers and sisters that are sick. We have death. We have struggles. We have financial woes. There's a multiplicity of, of realities in this fallen world. And sometimes we don't know exactly why, right? And sometimes we all have that this, this emotional experience of, you know, I'm praying in this current climate, and it just feels like my prayers aren't reaching God. He's not, he doesn't hear me. It may feel like that, but no, he hears you. He hears your prayers. And you may wonder, why does he, why am I going through this? Why does he have me at this particular place in my life now? Why am I having to experience this particular issue? Why am I having this particular struggle? Why am I sick? Why is my body filled with pain? Why did I have to lose this loved one at this time in my life? The sovereign God of your redemption is bringing every facet of life that you experience about for his glory. Can God use tyrants of this world to bring about his glory? Not only can he, he does. He sets them up and then he brings them down according to his own good pleasure. And in the midst of all that, it just doesn't seem to make sense to you. A sovereign God is glorifying himself. The sovereign God who redeemed you in the beloved. And he will see you through every bit of it. Every bit of it. All the way through. For your spiritual good. That you may know. Can he use a tyrant? To draw you closer to him. Yes, he can. He'll see you through every bit of it. Know that you are now enslaved to a new master. The slavery is not erased. You just have a new master. Christ is our Lord. He is our master. We are now slaves of the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So it's not a matter of having a master. Master's okay if you have the right master. You belong to a glorious Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is your master. And now you are a slave to righteousness in Christ. The spirit of God indwells you and grants you capacity to walk in righteousness to the glory of God. That's your response is obedience. Your response is striving to know him more fully and walk in that righteousness. Now, this shapes our relationship to Christ. Our sins is not our sin is not paid, and then we just live in a void. Our sin that is paid, and we live in the power of the Spirit of God to walk in righteousness. For, uh, uh, to the glory of our master, our Lord and master, Jesus Christ. We are now enslaved to the righteousness of Christ, to the glory of God, and to our good. So know this. Feast upon this. Know the profound freedom of being a slave to Christ. Don't let that language burden you because it's not politically correct. It's exactly how scripture decides, uh, describes us. We are slave to Christ. And that is a beautiful freedom. It's a freedom like you cannot imagine. It's a freedom this world doesn't know. It's a freedom that has power to glorify God in a fallen world. That is yours according to the glorious sovereign grace of God. And here also must be the gospel call if you are outside of Christ this morning. If this is not true of you. If you're still a slave to your sin. Then come to him. Come to Christ. Repent and believe on Christ. Believe him. 
Believe his love is vast. Listen to this language here about the beloved and his redemption. Believe him. Believe that his love is vast and that it can reach down to even the likes of you. And repent and believe on Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for um, your sovereign grace. We thank you that you have sent the beloved to be our redeemer. We thank you that we, in Christ, are set apart and named off as the redeemed. That is our identity. We thank you that all the spiritual riches that belong to Christ belong to us, that all the love, God the Father, that is lavished upon the Son from eternity to eternity is lavished upon us as we are now found in Christ. What a God, what a Savior. Help us to treasure you and obey you and reflect the marvelous light of Christ in this world for your glory and for our good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.